you're running a VPN, you find out about Bitcoin. The year is like 2013 now. You seem to me like a person who opportunities will come and you've had success knowing which ones to grab and run with and which ones to move on. Do you have any advice for people or continue the story? I think one of the best pieces of advice I have is you make your own luck. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us and listening in. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin OGs, crypto's most influential leaders. Shit, those like my guests today that are super hustling and are not only transparent about their success, but I like talking to people who are transparent about where they came from. And you guys are really in for a treat today, a freaking awesome treat with some of the cool stories and the background about my guest today, Jordan Freed. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I've been watching you from afar. We have a lot of mutual friends who have been telling me for the longest time that we got to get together. So I regret we haven't met in person yet, but I'm really excited to chat with you. Next week, I'll be in LA. You live there, right? I'll be in LA. No, I live. No, I'm in. I spent time in LA. I live in Puerto Rico. I'm in. Oh, uh, you moved I'm, to Puerto Rico like everyone yeah, else. I moved to Puerto Rico, exactly. How's <laughs> the crypto community out there right now? It's listen. It's it's. I've got two small children. I've got to tell you, we don't have all the infrastructure that LA, New York, or Miami has, but there's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be living than right here, right now. That's an interesting point because you're in Bitcoin and crypto because there's no infrastructure already. And you're in this industry now because you're out there building the infrastructure for it, like we've all been doing for the past 10 years or whatever. It's kind of like that's your ethos now. Other people would be like, yeah, I need to live in a place that has the perfect infrastructure. You go into the store, they have 10 different brands of whatever you want. And if I want to buy shampoo, I walk into Walgreens, there's like 50 different types. But in some places, there's like only one or two, just to use like a crude example. Maybe you're comfortable in uncomfortability. Maybe that's what you need. Yeah, I mean, part of my story is I left Buffalo, New York for Budapest, Hungary. I lived in Budapest for like seven years. And it feels like that was one of those pivotal moments where you move to a country where you don't speak the language, you don't know what the money's worth. It changes you, forces you to, yes, it's uncomfortable. It forces you to define yourself, what you stand for. You got to make friends. You got to open a bank account. Yeah. And I made it so much harder for myself because I decided to actually start a business there, which is a big challenge because most of that country doesn't speak English. Speak Hungarian? I speak Hungarian like a four or five-year-old. That's better than nothing. It's, it's better than nothing. I, I know enough to be really polite in a hotel, restaurant, cafe setting, but not enough to talk about Bitcoin and the blockchain. I love this. I would say you're a Bitcoin blockchain evangelist and crypto capitalist. That's a great way to like be comfortable with your Bitcoiner roots, but then also be like a Bitcoiner in the world that we live in today because crypto capitalists, I love that. I'm going to use that actually. You're the chairman and CEO of Immutable Holdings, known as the blockchain holding company. You own and operate NFT.com, 1-800-Bitcoin.com, Immutable Asset Management, cbdc.com, hbar.com. You are part of the founding team of Hedera Hashgraph. We've covered that multiple times on the show over the years. Amazing project. You helped secure a lot of partnerships with Hedera and Google and IBM and some other companies. You were the CEO of Buffered VPN, so you know the technology world really well. In 2012, you discovered Bitcoin and never turned back. And you've been kind of like in the space and angel investing. You run an amazing podcast, as you could tell by your freaking awesome podcast studio. I know where I want to start, but where do you want to start? 
Yeah, I actually get a little bit of anxiety when someone goes through my bio like that. And let me just say why. You have imposter syndrome? <laughs> I, I still do. I have a massive chip on my shoulder. I don't have a college degree. I grew up in a religious Jewish family in Buffalo, New York, and I never quite felt like I belonged. And I think that a lot of my story is just characterized by being in the right place at the right time. I actually found Bitcoin as a complete accident. I moved as an American kid who was lost, overweight, and insecure to Budapest, Hungary. And I found that outside the US, the internet sucks. You didn't have a you didn't have a US IP address. All the services and websites I came to know and love, they didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and really, my story was characterized as how did I? I was sitting in Budapest. I remember I needed to get a, a US IP address. I learned what a VPN was. I built my own VPN tool using digital ocean droplets, an open source program called OpenVPN. I was technical enough, I could hack some stuff together. It ended up becoming a company that friends used, That's family so cool. used. Yeah, I, thank you. They, for, for me, it was cool that I just got to watch the Buffalo Bills games. For me, it was cool. I just got to watch the American Netflix library. I didn't think it would turn into a company. I didn't think I would spend like my full time waking hours doing that. But if I didn't do that, Charlie, I never would have found Bitcoin. So it's one of my favorite parts of this industry is when you meet new people, everyone's like, well, everyone shares their like origin story. How did you find Bitcoin? How did you find Bitcoin? Mine was some random anonymous person who we'll probably never meet from like a Proton mail email address emailing us asking if we could take Bitcoin as a payment method for Buffer VPN. And if I just ignored that email, I wouldn't be where I am today. If I didn't respond to that email, if I didn't like dive into it, I definitely would not. Thank God I'm curious. And again, I just really believe everything happens for a reason. But the serendipitous timing of that, had I not moved to Budapest, had I not started a VPN company, had I not opened that email, it would have completely altered the course, the trajectory of my career and my life. And it's now, this is my 10th anniversary in the world of Bitcoin. Congratulations. And thank you. You cry it's... right now. We grew <laughs> well, up in the it, same... We had the same childhood. I grew up in a very religious Jewish community in Brooklyn. I went to yeshiva, speak Hebrew fluently. I was supposed to studying to become a rabbi. My family's part of like a very modern Orthodox community. And, and I love that community because it, it works for those who it works for, you know, but then there are outliers like you and I, where unfortunately, if we try to leave, it's like once you're out, you're out and you're never back in. And I don't know about you. But like I was excommunicated. They had the whole funeral for me. They ripped their shirt, the whole situation. But I had something to run to. I had Bitcoin, which I had first discovered like a few months prior to that. And then I had met my now wife. This is almost 10 years ago, who was just my girlfriend at the time. And she was building a home for us outside of the religious community. And I'm actually writing the story in my book. I left the morning of Rosh Hashanah because I knew that that was wow. the only day that the whole family would not be home. And that day I had like two hours while they were in shul in synagogue to pack up everything I owned into a few bags, literally write a handwritten note on my bed and just left. And I haven't been back ever since. That's incredible. I, I luckily didn't have to go through that. My, my dad did though. My uncle is a, one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's in the Upper West Side hmm. in New York. Oh my God. Yeah. My dad actually was the one who left his father they had become religious when my dad was a teenager and my uncle went to yeshiva and became this prominent rabbi and asked about Rabbi Freed in New York. And we we sort of lost touch with that side of the family. I started going to Hebrew day school. We were Shomer Shabbos on the weekends, but wow. it, luckily it was easier for me because my parents became much more progressively more reform, I would say, as I got older, where we started as I would go to shul with my grandfather, young Israel, every Saturday morning 
where I left Hebrew Day School. I eventually got into a secular elementary school. I was a lot younger, and my parents sort of made that transition with us as we got older. Yeah, your story is incredible. How old were you when you moved to Budapest? I moved to Budapest when I was 20 years old, 20, I would say 20, 21. The first time I visited there, I actually took, my first time there was 18. I took that Taglit uh, trip to Israel. And uh, I was like, hey, and my, my plan originally was I'm never going to come back from Taglit. I was just going to uh, stay. I tried stay that. Israel, I'll tell you that story. I tried that. <laughs> another, another story for another time. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I was a complete fuck up. I was like, no direction. So I'm like, I'm going to take this free trip. I'm going to trick my parents. I'm not going to come back. And actually, I kept extending. I would call El Al and you know, they actually wanted you to join the army. So like, yeah. I, no fee, they would extend, extend. And then I ran out of money and I had to come back. So I eventually did come back. But I ended up in Budapest also with no money when I was about 20 years old and made it work. I didn't leave until I was 27. For those listening, Taglid is, is this Jewish trip that young men go on between the ages of like 18 and 26 to kind of go to Israel or and more, more importantly, kind of discover themselves outside of their parents. Similar to like where the Amish go on the Rumspringer for a year or two where they just go on into the world. And and the trip kind of encourages people to be like very social, like young men and, 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 and girls and to like figure out, discover their culture and religion. It's a beautiful thing. But like you, I also tried staying and joining the army. But my yeah. parents, you need that. I don't know if you remember, you need that, the, your birth certificate. My parents would not mail it to me. They're like, you are not going. And I guess I'm happy. But at the same time, maybe I was secretly looking for this like this experience that was just hyper different from the from the life that I was growing up on. But you lived, you grew up in Buffalo. I mean, it's a rough place to grow up. It's not the warmest. It's it was brutal. It was and uh, it, it, it I, I would say it was really miserable a lot a lot of the times. My favorite thing to do was to lie to my parents that I was you know going to a friend's house and I would take the station wagon and drive to Toronto because Toronto was two hours away. And I'd see Niagara Falls and I'd see, you know, Toronto's a big city. It's continued to explode. But back then it was just, wow, it was the closest thing I could find to people and, you know, a financial district. And it was, it was great. I can't say enough good things about people who raised their family there. I don't want to speak badly necessarily about Buffalo because I have a lot of friends that stayed back there. Oh yeah, there most that, of my friends are there too. It's just a cold, yeah. like it, the it, weather is it, cold. And by the way, I, I will, I will say this. It's one of the few places left in America where you can still live a very comfortable life if your household income is around a hundred to $150,000. You can get a nice home, single story, live a very comfortable I like Rochester. Rochester is great too. It's just, it wasn't for me. And I think a lot of successful people that I've met, good mentor of mine actually articulated this much better than I ever could, which was like, you had to run away from the hometown definition of you. I think there's two definitions of who you are. There's like who you want to be and then who everyone around you wants you to be. And it sounds like for your family, they wanted you to go become a rabbi and finish yeshiva and all of this. My family had this, you know, I think my friends and the people around me had this preconceived notion of what they wanted me to become. But then there's this thing I wanted to become and going to Budapest enabled me to get away from everything and everyone and then become my own man. And I can't say enough good things about that. That's an amazing quote. You have to run away from the, from the hometown version of you. I just wrote that down. That's like the best quote I've ever heard. Oh, that's, I'm sure it's not the best quote you've ever heard, but I really appreciate that. It completely defines my personal life, though, and how I kind of feel every day. But I don't know what that urge was. I don't know kind of what happened. But but I remember like a very distinct feeling, right? Sitting at, I remember a distinct moment, sitting at the big family table and looking around from my grandparents all the way down to the young kids. And there's like, you know, big families. 
And just looking at, I remember like looking at each person's individual life. And I knew my family very on a very deep level, my uncles, my grandparents, my, my, you know, my aunts, my cousins, from the young ones to the older ones, I ran through their whole lives. And I looked at it and I said to myself, my life will be a variation of one of their lives. And it just depressed the hell out of me. Yeah. It depressed the hell out of me. And I was like, I don't want to have any variation of this except for like the family and the children and like the whole like loving and all the love. There was so much love and good food. That was great. But it was like living someone else's life. But anyway, so you're in, so you're, so you're running a VPN. You find out about Bitcoin. The year is like 2013. Now you seem to me like a person who opportunities will come and you've had success knowing which ones to grab and run with and which ones to kind of like move on. Do you have any advice for people or continue the story? Yeah. I think one of the best pieces of advice I have is you make your own luck. And I think the way, like a practical piece of advice that I had been given on how you make your own luck is you can make yourself luckier by just moving, by just having momentum. And like what that practically means is, I think it's what you're doing here. You, you have a podcast. While you're sleeping, people will listen to your podcast and will listen to an interview and opportunities will come your way. I'm sure you can come up with 100 plus opportunities that have come from you putting out untold stories and meeting interesting people in conversations like this where you get another idea or you find a quote or it changes you in some way, shape or form. For me, that was blogging. I was writing this entire time. Actually, the way I really was able to start a VPN company was I had first wrote a blog post called How to Watch Netflix in Europe on my blog, which really only, only my mom read at the time, what it was like <laughs> to be an American living in Budapest. But the blog post got all of these backlinks. It got shared by like a Wired.com reporter and a New York Times reporter and Google ranks web pages based on backlinks and domain authority. And I got all this domain authority for these VPN keywords. And I had all this traffic. So I was able to monetize that traffic as converted them into customers of my VPN. You know, at first I, I yeah. did it as an affiliate to other people's VPNs, but then my own. And I kind of just realized, okay, I can spot, I can spot that writing and putting content out in the world is creating opportunities for me. And if I continue to do that, more will come. Content compounds. Like there's that law of like compound interest. Like Warren Buffett talks about it all the time, like the law of large numbers. And eventually content compounds where you have so many people that are, you put enough content out there that it continuously sustains. And more and more YouTubers talk about this all the time where, you know, they have millions of people watching their channels on a monthly basis. And that for me was making my own luck. I was eventually someone who was reading my blog ended up reaching out and made an offer to buy the company. And then I had several people talking about buying the company. And then I ended up being 26, I think just turning 27 years old when the company sold or sold the company. At that stage, I had no idea what to do next. I, I married my Hungarian girlfriend. I had one son. My oldest son's name is Yossi. I gave him a Hebrew name. Love and Yossi uh, was like, four months old. And we decided to travel the entire world. Like we went to China, saw the Great Wall of China, went to India, saw the Taj Mahal. I did everything I thought you're supposed to do after an exit. Thought I was like hot shit. Like, okay, yeah. just, just sold the company. I've got money. And like, now I'm going to go do this. And meanwhile, I had no idea what to do with my hands. The truth, Charlie, is like, I was, I was probably what you would call medically depressed at that stage. Like enough where you would like you would have wrote me a prescription or medicated. I get it. Me. I get it. I, yeah. A uh, lot of us it, have been there. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I'm grateful that that period happened. I almost divorced at that time. Uh, you know, my wife and I were fighting the entire time about you know, where we were going to live. And really, I was the problem. She was lovely. She was just tolerating me. I have no idea how she put up with me. I was the entirety of the problem because I wasn't happy. And what I realized was my happiness came from building something. 
Like I had this project, I had this buffered VPN. We were like 30 employees and I had this amazing team. I adopted this identity, Jordan Freed, founder and CEO of Buffered VPN. I didn't know how to introduce myself. I was being very negative with myself in my head. And I finally realized I can't sit still. I got to be building something. We decided, I love Frank Sinatra. So the quote, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. I had to move to New York. We agreed to pack up the bags. My wife gives me one year. She's like, I will do one year in New York. She really didn't want to move to America at the time. So we rent an apartment, get a bunch of Ikea furniture. And four days after moving to New York, at the end of this global trip, it was like South Korea, China, India, all these crazy places, uh, Japan for like a month. I ate so much sushi and gained a lot of weight. Like we ended up in New York and four days after moving in there, again, just a story of timing and being in the right place at the right time. I meet Manson Lehman, the uh, Dr. Lehman there, the Nance Harmon, the founders of what then was just called the Hashgraph Consensus Algorithm, which was a white paper that I had read, which I understood enough about the Bitcoin white paper. If I cut to, I don't know if your listeners will be able to see this camera if I cut to it, but like, it's it's on the other side of this, actually the Bitcoin white paper on the wall. The Bitcoin white paper talked about this global peer-to-peer How did you meet Dr. Baird? I was introduced to him by a friend that I met in Budapest in 2012 named Andrew Masanto, who was in New York, who had found this white paper. Andrew has gone on to do some incredible things. I can't say enough good things about this guy. He's behind his latest project. It's called Nillion. He's behind reserve rights. He was one of the original investors. He's done so much in blockchain. He's got a massive DTC brand called PetLab.com. Andrew had taught me a lot about search engine optimization, affiliate marketing. He was really just at the cutting edge of all of these big shifts and sort of internet commercialization. And he had sent me this white paper, again, having nothing to do except day trade cryptocurrency. And, you know, I was buying ETH at this point. I bought Litecoin at like four bucks because I love Charlie Lee. And I was like, yeah, Charlie Lee, love, go Charlie, whatever Charlie's doing, I'm doing. Yeah, same. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, Charlie was amazing. I was like writing emails to him. I was, I followed up with Brian Armstrong because like I had exchanged emails with Brian Armstrong. Isn't it great when you can just talk to all these people back then? It was, it was so much easier, right? I would fly to Toronto because my buddy was starting a new crypto project called like Polymath and I wrote the check in the Polymath. So I was just deploying capital. I was like any crypto project I saw. And again, right place, right time. I sold my company in January. I had all this cash and I was like, let's make these investments. But when I met Manson Lehman, everything stopped. It was like, I am done being this like jack of all trades, master of none. Like I, I'm going to go all in on this thing. Like I'm going to put all my money into this thing. And more than that, it's like, I have to work on making this something because if what Dr. Baird said was true, he has a consensus algorithm that can do everything a blockchain can do. It's literally not a chain of blocks. It's not a proof of work blockchain. It's a graph, a directed acyclic graph, a graph of cryptographic hashes that's far more efficient, yes. as decentralized, is leaderless, no leader in the system. He called it asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance. And I'm like, okay, let's go do this. Little did I know I would be tasked with building the enterprise DAO, let's call it, that became the Hedera Governing Council. And my job as a 27-year-old without a college degree from Buffalo, New York, who spent seven years in Budapest, was to go convince the CEOs and CIOs and CTOs of multi-billion dollar multinational companies to join this governing body, which honestly, I laughed at. I just want to pause for one second and remind everyone we had Dr. Baird on the show back in, shoot, like 2022, maybe. The episode is called Bootstrapping a Decentralized Network, Kadera Hashcraft's Lehman Baird on 34% attacks, meth, and gossip. You can find it everywhere. 
It was an epic episode. We've been also running the show with no sponsors since December, and I appreciate all you guys leaving reviews and hitting that subscribe button because that's all I ask from you guys. Yeah, I love that you moved on from no sponsors. Sponsors are dangerous in crypto. <laughs> I personally got so caught off guard by, by the Voyager situation. I had money there. And after that fallout, and I'd done my due diligence so well there, I just started to doubt everything I thought I knew. And I lost my opportunity to properly vet new sponsors. So I just like, let me take a hold. So we're just doing that for a while. And I'm not the only podcaster doing it now. There's all, all the other ones are kind of going. I saw Pompliano stop. Yep. Yeah, a lot of other yep. stuff. It's super, super smart of you. I think there's other ways to monetize and it's it's forcing all of us to be careful who we align ourselves with. The, the Voyager situation was crazy. You know what's crazy, Charlie, is you know, just to continue on that, yeah. is I used to look up to all these guys. I met Steve Ehrlich when he was first starting the company and Voyager got to like a $3 billion market cap, just this stock. They were publicly traded in Canada. I was like, wow, this look at this guy. Like I met him in 2017. Wow. I used to have FOMO because I remember at that point in 2017, I had like made two choices. I'm like, I'm either going to start a cryptocurrency exchange or I'm going to go try to start a blockchain. Those were like my two choices. And I had chose, I had chose the, the latter. I was like, I'm gonna go start a blockchain, not a cryptocurrency exchange. And then all these guys, like I put on my vision board, like, you know, CZ or yeah. like, you know, uh, because I was always I had a mentor that once said, find someone who's where you want to be and just do what they're doing. Every every single day. That was like the biggest piece of advice that I'd gotten. And again, like I'm insecure, don't have a degree. And I'm seeing all these giants climb like Sam's trajectory. We both had like started working in crypto full time at around the same time. He was at Jane and then it just started like Alameda and then FTX. And I just had all this like FOMO because I'm here building Hedera, but all these guys are building cryptocurrency exchanges. I actually think I spent my time doing the right thing. I, I no longer regret the decision I made, but it's maybe what I'm trying to say is I think I have to be a little bit more careful who I who I put up on that vision board and who I try to mimic oh, yeah. because yeah, it's it's crazy what happened to Steve Ehrlich and and these guys are to blame. They're responsible. None of these companies had internal controls in place. No, they had no internal controls. Like like none of them. And shit, man, I don't even know if I want to start going down this road. But half of these people that are CEOs of these major like digital currency group and all these other exchanges were kind of like the one I got them. I feel bad because I bought all these people their first Bitcoin from the Winklevoss twins to Barry Silbert himself. <laughs> Talk about times. Yeah. If I didn't go to the coffee shop that day and pitch Bitcoin to those two people would be here today. But <laughs> so I definitely feel bad a little bit there, but I was so caught off guard. It's I wanted to ask you earlier, you talked about that kind of like personal period of disillusionment and you're hitting a stride with a lot of listeners right now because we'll all go through that point, hopefully, where we've hit a success and then we're idle and we don't know what to do next. I've been there too. And during those times, you do get frustrated and you get irritable and grouchy and you lose sight of yourself. You lose sight of who you are. You start to question, am I just the product of what I've created over the last 10 years? Who am I really? People go back and they look for people that they knew beforehand and, you know, you start to go after. Yeah. But at the same time, you're happy while you're working. All that work, especially in crypto, comes with this immense stress. So sometimes I don't want to go back to work because you don't want to deal with that stress that comes with it. So how did you kind of get around that? Listen, I'm not perfect. I deal with it. You remember it as well as I do. I'm sure, Charlie, I, I remember Bitcoin crashing from 1,000 to 200. I remember getting phone calls from close family members. Like, I told you so. Like, this whole thing's a scam. Oh it's crashing. Oh, that that 20,000 to 3,000 crash was a full-on adrenaline-induced fight-or-flight mode. 
I mean, we had just started Hedera. It felt like the entire world had collapsed. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm trying to start a layer one blockchain, an alternative to Ethereum and everything, while every headline, CNBC, Jim Cramer is on TV fighting with like Pompliano saying like, you're an idiot. This is over. Bitcoin is dead. It is over. And while I didn't want to believe it, at, right before you fall asleep at night, of course you're telling yourself, am I crazy? Are they all right? All of us had those moments. Like, am I, am yeah. I completely delusional? I think that the, the answer is, it, it may not be the right answer, but it was the answer for me is I started breaking it down as not this mountain I had to climb, but I'm like, just do one more day, just one more, like one more rep, like just get up and go to one more meeting, like just answer just one, one more, more. like just get up and go to, uh, you know, just take that one more trip to that, what, like one more conference. And I stopped thinking of it as like, look how much further we have to go. There was a point where I didn't even think the Hedera network would ever launch because of like, we were so terrified of the STC at that point. And we were meeting with them, Charlie. We weren't like yeah. hiding. We were. We would go to DC and proactively meet with all the commissioners under Jay Clayton's administration and ask them, how can we do this in a compliant way? Do you want us to do this? And we would get comments back and we would make all the adjustments. They wanted us to adjust our circulating supply and our release schedule. They oh wanted God. us to do further lockups. And we would listen. We would do everything they were saying. And right before Hedera launch, I remember they shut down the, te- remember Ton, uh, T-O-N? Of course. They shut down the Telegram, Telegram, Telegram one. one. Yeah, I actually passed on that investment. And a week before the Hedera Network went live in 2019, they shut that project down and we were shitting our pants and we went and we went live a week later. I honestly attribute that to, I remember being on business trips with Manson. I would be like teary-eyed at the end of the night because it was just so much rejection. Like, Charlie, imagine this. Everyone's saying Bitcoin's dead and I'm having to go into a boardroom and try to get people to join a limited liability company in Delaware to govern what was then called the Hedera Governing Council, or I think back then we called it the Hashgraph Consortium. These people would laugh in my face. Crypto was a bad word in the boardroom. They thought I was like this delusional idiot and it didn't feel good. Listen, I'm grateful I did it. I don't know exactly how I made it through that, but the, the best answer I could give you is one more, just one more meeting, one more phone call. One of the things, one of the life lessons that I learned in prison was that you have to, I hate that I had to learn this in prison, but you have to like do things for other people without expecting anything in return. I guess you could say I learned that in the Jewish world through like chesed or whatever. But in in prison, you have live by it. You have to like, everyone has to have almost a side hustle that they do for free because you have to like contribute to the community. So some folks, for example, like I took it upon myself to clean the showers on the weekends even though no one had to do that job, but you all have to contribute, right? You said this in a tweet. You said, I think one of the secrets of the universe is making money for the right people. Is that the same thing, right? Yeah, it's all the success I can claim to have. Charlie, people are like nice to me now and I don't even know why. And, and, And I'll even, maybe you can relate to this, but like we used to be the people who were never invited, right? The crypto kids, like the Bitcoiners, we never got invited to... Davos. We never got invited to special events. I never got invited to speak. And then all of a sudden in bull markets, everybody wants to be your friend. And I realized what was happening was when you make a venture successful, and I think the decision is really like, if you want to take the island, you burn the boats. I don't want to like quote Tony Robbins here, but he he talks a lot about this and, and it did have an impact on my life. But mm-hmm. this whole notion of once, Hedera was one of the first times I'd actually taken someone else's money. And that fight or flight moment came when Bitcoin was crashing. And I I remember thinking like, oh shit, okay, I still have enough 
saved on the side. I've done well in like Ethereum and I've done well in like Litecoin. And I've sold, I sold some Litecoin at the peak around like 300. So I'm like, okay, I, I have more than I had when I left. When I sold a VPN company, I've made money. But like literally my mind was like, okay, flight, go back to Budapest. It's cheaper to live in Budapest. Apartment rents are cheaper. It's cheaper than New York. I can extend my runway. But then I'm like, shut up, Jordan. Like shut up and just make this work. Staying the course, making Hedera work. Hedera turned out like the fully diluted market cap of Hedera got to like 15 to 20 billion this past cycle. And a lot of people were able to get not just the principal out, but make a very handsome return, very handsome profit. Of course, you know, we never promised that. It was a reg D offering and we did things by the book and we never promised that the coins would be worth anything. They're really meant for the utility of the network. Insert all legal disclaimers here for regulators that are listening to this. But it was important for me at that point that I could say that I had done what was required and that we had a success outcome. And in doing that, I realized that I would get these phone calls, Charlie, from people that said, whatever you're doing next, blank check. Like blank, whatever you're doing next, blank check. Like, hey, I want to introduce you to these 10 people. I went from knowing zero billionaires to people putting me in rooms with guys that were the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and people that just wanted to open up doors because we had built something of significance. And the people that made money on it were the right people that were able to, honestly, I wouldn't be here in Puerto Rico if that didn't happen. That's in the bull markets, though. In the bear markets, everything changes. You become like a pariah. Oh, I mean, I have people that won't even talk to me right now, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> it's but it's a, really a good life list. lesson. It's that same lesson I learned when you go to prison is that you you truly know how to figure out who your real friends are, not which ones are real, which ones are not. But you learn to figure out what are the character traits that will define a true friend or a true business partner during bad times. Most of your projects that you've started or been a part of, were they launched during these bear markets? Yes. So first, before I started making, before any of my companies were successful, I just want to get this out there. I failed at at least 50 different businesses between the ages of 13 and 19 or 20, just trying to get out of Buffalo, like from everything, from selling RuneScape. Uh, this is my name in RuneScape font, which was a huge, massive multiplayer online game that I love playing. Yeah. And like, I got in a lot of trouble selling RuneScape gold points. Like I got in a lot of trouble doing shit online. I used to, you know, I found this supplier in China that would make me anything, including knockoff Ralph Lauren polos, and I would sell them on eBay. And I realized, okay, there's a way to make money and there's a wrong way to make money. Yeah. And I, I learned right from wrong during these periods and got banned from PayPal and, and eBay and all of that. But these were all important formative lessons. When I started figuring out, okay, here's 50 ways not to make money, that is when I figured out, okay, product, it was like a, a natural lesson in product market fit. Build a product that people are actually willing to take their credit card out and pay for right away. Things started shifting for me. And not every business was built during a bear market, but listen, Buffered VPN was built in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. So oh, yeah. I was building a just a tool that solved the pain point. People wanted to watch American Netflix or get Gmail in China, and they would get Buffered VPN because we could bypass the Chinese firewalls. Yes, it's a challenge. And now with NFT.com, it's who knows how long. Like We're, we're literally trying to get NFT.com to public beta this quarter, Q1 2023, in what is we've been in private beta for a while. We've generated $7 million in, in private beta, but we've got to now make NFT.com a successful platform that could potentially compete with the open seas of the world in one of the worst economic times for fundraising and for development. And yeah. honestly, Charlie, sometimes I step back and I'm like, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> like, why do I continuously? This is the start? time. Yeah. And, it's, it, and, and that's what I come back to, which is future Jordan will thank me 
for doing what I'm doing today. And I I just want to make my future self proud. And I look back and I'm very proud of my behavior in the, you know, 20,000 to 3000 Bitcoin crash. I'm very proud of my behavior, like while trying to build and sell buffered VPN. And it's, I'm just trying to make future Jordan proud and be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. What specific sectors now are you excited about in 2023? I just wrote this whole report yesterday for my investor place readers that I'm going to send out. I wrote this report called the big five and then 10 categories that I'm looking at for the next year, subsections, and then kind of the moonshot projects that I'm excited about. Right now, I think we're back at the time of like, everyone's just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah. So like, and that's, and that's, I, I look at the realm of possibility with like NFT.com, right? It's like NFT.com, it's, it's highly unlikely you can create a unicorn, although it's become easier to create unicorns, but it's like Hedera was a unicorn. It'd be really great if NFT.com became a unicorn, but in reality, like anything from here to unicorn status is, is like the success outcome because we bought the domain name for $2 million. And, you know, you could argue it's worth many multiples of that right now, but it's like, do we sell it to like eBay or Amazon or Walmart? Someone that wants an NFT play at some point in the future for a couple hundred million, that's still a success outcome. But like, I do want to build game-changing technology. I'm not just looking for another exit at this stage. I, I, you know, it'd be great if I could tell my kids like, hey. That's interesting though, because, oh, sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, just for saying, it would be great if I could tell my kids like, daddy built that. Like, you know, look, 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 look what I did, right? It's, uh, it, it would contribute to the legacy. That's interesting. I'm sure that changed at some point. You're looking at like money and success and everything. As we get older, it slowly starts to change. And we, I don't know, like I'm in my mid thirties now and I start to look at the world a little bit differently than I did when I was like in my mid twenties. I look at the world completely differently. Like for me, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, what success was, I would have said a billion dollars and a, you know, probably like an Aston Martin DB9. And now my answer is, I actually just want my kids to want to spend time with me. I will be successful if my children value and want to spend quality time. It's crazy to say that because I have a six-year-old right now and I have a, I have a one-year-old, but like a successful life would be like the children want to be around. A lot of pressure to put on yourself. You can do everything right, but then something could happen. I try not to be judgmental. Like maybe my son wants to be a, like a, maybe wants to be a ballerina and like, yeah. I got to be a, I got to be okay with that. Like maybe he's Billy Elliot and he just wants to like dance and that should be okay for me as a dad. I want to teach him right from wrong and I want to leave him with like first principles, but I hope I can cultivate an atmosphere where they feel like they can confide in me and do that. And by the way, that's like a radically different definition of success. I still want, you know, I'm still challenging myself. Like money is very much still a game for me. It's a tool. It's a way of leverage. You can use money to have lots of people work for you. And money, again, can compound. And it's fun to play money and wealth creation games. And I'm still yes. doing that. Obviously, it's like I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing all the things I'm doing if I wasn't. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's like we're all going to get old. I'm also in my mid-30s. We're going to die at some point. And who's next to you and who's around you? And by the way, who's left to tell your story? Like we can create as many podcasts or as many YouTube videos or as many like blog posts after, but I don't know if you've seen the the play Alexander Hamilton on Broadway. The end song is like the lyrics are who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And you could argue that we know Alexander Hamilton's story the way we know it today because of Eliza, his wife, who lived on and collected wow. all of his writings and told his story. So who lives, you know, who lives on after us wow. that we made an impact on their lives that tells our story? I think a lot about that. And it's like, you can't take the money with you, but 
stories live on forever. We're, it's human in nature. We're storytellers. We're podcasting here, right? Like all the time, just to save these stories for the future, preserving the history of, of what we started and why we did it. Jordan Free, thank you so much for coming, coming on the show today. And, and what's the name of your show, by the way? Go check out coffeeandcrypto.com. We just dropped a trailer everywhere you get your podcasts. Go check it out. And then Coffee and Crypto, the first, it's a two-week show, Mondays and Thursdays. Starts next week. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully, Charlie, hopefully people like it like they like Untold Stories. Congrats again on, love the content you're putting out there. Your story from prison to where you are today is you did such a service, especially the impact you had. Gemini likely would not have existed if it wasn't for your contribution to informing the Winklevi twins on uh, <laughs> yeah, on, on all of that. There are so many other people too. I got to write this book. Like even Fred Wilson, I sold him his first Bitcoin from Union Square Ventures and and all these other. That's amazing. I love really cool people. Barry, like Barry Silbert too. Uh, Matthew Mellon, who had passed away, who ended up being one of the founders of Ripple. I mean, shit. Even like the Ripple founders, all the Ripple. You should founders. teach a course called like the history of Bitcoin. Like I'm working uh, on it from the very beginning. <laughs> I'm working. I need to find a university that'll let me teach that course. But I'm like thinking of. I'm thinking of rejoining the Bitcoin Foundation just for the sake of being like a preservationist of the history of Bitcoin and how it became crypto. I, all I want to do is just be a historian and storyteller. I got to figure out a way to like live off of that somehow. But that's what I'm going to do. I, I love that. It's so important. Again, storytelling is storytelling is one of my goals this year. Like, how can I become a better storyteller through writing, through podcasting, and through all of it? So hopefully, uh, yeah. Hopefully You'll be successful. Fun. But anyway, th thanks for having me, Charlie.